If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter four, we're gonna keep cruising along here in our series through Mark's gospel. And um, I told you uh, last week that really what we had was one sermon in two parts. And so we're kind of just finishing last week's sermon. This is part two. So thank you for uh, coming back for that. Um, These two questions, these two passages that we're focusing on right here in the center of Mark's gospel in chapter eight, really form a microcosm of the book and its whole message. Who is Jesus and what does discipleship to him look like? And so that's kind of where we are this morning. We'll see who showed up to preach today, the grouchy guy from last week or maybe somebody else this morning. So I want to do a little uh, recap to catch us up in case you weren't here or in case you have forgotten so we can get a running start into this. Um, Last week, we started with this discussion that Jesus was having with his disciples in sort of these little villages up in the north country around Caesarea Philippi. And he sort of poses the the question sort of informally. Hey, guys, you know, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What's trending right now? What's public opinion about me? Who do they say that I am? Uh, And then he sort of turns the question and he personalizes it. And he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this is really a profound sort of twist of the question here, or turn of the question, because people are generally willing to talk about public opinion of something. Oh, yeah, some people think this. I saw that. I read an article. I saw a post. You know, we're pretty comfortable talking in that range of things. But to personalize it, to turn it, and to say, no, what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the, that's the question that really matters is our personal response to this. And Peter makes the profound profession, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. Christ, Messiah are synonymous terms. You are the Messiah. And so last week we spent a little bit of time just kind of researching what Jewish expectation of Messiah was. And so we really traced God's progressive promise of this coming Messiah all the way from Genesis 3 and then quickly through the prophets so that we kind of had an understanding of what they were waiting for and what they were expecting. And we learned three things at least, and these were sort of broad strokes, right? Not, not everything, um, not all of the details or the nuances, but generally we learned uh, that he was a promised rescuer. And these are in the grayed out notes at the beginning of your handout there. A promised rescuer, that he was uh, from the kingly line of David or would be from the kingly line of David. Therefore, he would rule. And that Messiah would bring restoration, particularly to Israel, and establish his eternal kingdom. And so with that, we really grew to understand the early disciples, the early followers of Jesus, their excitement and their enthusiasm about Christ the King, right? Messiah who would rescue, restore Israel, and establish an enduring, in fact, eternal kingdom. But we also noted an omission in their messianic expectation. That is, they wanted Christ the King so badly that they failed to recognize the necessity of Christ the suffering servant, as we find in Isaiah 53. 
And last week, I, I sort of provided this framework for our understanding really of the storyline of the scripture to kind of help us to see this. And you remember the four parts or sort of the four chapters as I described them. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And, and this framework really helps us to see the early disciples' mistake. That is, they were so eager and ready for restoration that they were tempted and inclined to skip right over this this other chapter of redemption. And I asserted uh, last week that I think that same temptation is present for you and I today. The case in point, we saw Peter doing this in the act of doing this, right? Uh, When Jesus begins to explain this redemption piece, the redemption of Messiah, and that it was gonna involve rejection and betrayal and suffering and death, and resurrection, Peter protested. Peter, who has just remarkably proclaimed, you are the Messiah, I personally believe that, would have none of this this ministry piece, this redemption piece. They wanted an instant king. They rejected a suffering servant. And so my provocation to us last week was, again, I think we're tempted to do the same thing in our day and age, particularly in the American church, where we are, I think, trying to make Jesus king by force. Eager for the restoration piece, oftentimes skipping right over the redemption piece. And it's understandable. I know where it comes from. I know the place that drives that. It's disappointment. It's frustration, anger, outrage as we look at the way things are. Things are not as they should be. And I think we are tempted to respond just as the early followers of Jesus did, trying to make Jesus king by force, going right to restoration and failing to see this part of the ministry that we've been called into restoration. And so my call for us was to get back on mission, remembering exactly what we have been called to, what chapter of the story we're in. The way that we contribute to the kingdom of God is not in realms like Christian nationalism where we try to set up Jesus as king by force, but rather it's we bring people into the kingdom of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we wanna see the kingdom more and more in our lives, then we give Jesus more and more room and influence in our personal lives. This is how we see the kingdom grow. More people in and more of Jesus in us. And so I think what we need to do is really reclaim this call given to us and remember what we have been called, even by the Apostle Paul, ministers of reconciliation. Each and every one here. It's not the job of the clergy. It's the job of all who belong to Jesus. We are ministries of reconciliation, reconciling sinful mankind to a holy God, ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. And then I challenged you last week. You had a homework assignment. Do you remember this? I gave you a homework assignment. Some of you are like, oh, the dog ate mine. uh..." Your homework assignment last week was to try to have one gospel conversation this week. And then I 
challenge some of you overachievers to even try to use that question that we talked about last week. And what about you? Who do you say that Jesus was? So here's the moment of truth. I promised we would do this. How many of you had a chance to have a gospel conversation this week? All right, we've got like one, two, three, five, 10, whatever. All right, some of you can get the homework from others, you know. Let's keep working on this. Gospel conversations. I had two this week. They were low, low, very low level, but here's what mine looked like. Uh, I've been carrying around a copy of Augustine's Confessions and reading it in public. I tell you what, when you read a book in public, it gets people's attention. So inevitably they ask, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, Augustine's Confessions. Talk about an opportunity for conversation. Why are you reading that? Now I can duck it and say, oh, I've got a class. I'm a student, blah, blah, blah. Or I can say, oh, you know, I'm a pastor and this is the kind of thing that pastors read. Or I can say, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm still learning to walk with Jesus and this guy has some interesting things to say about it. So anyways, I had two conversations like that this week where basically I was just able to publicly identify as a Christian. It's as far as it went. I didn't get to the question. I didn't get the extra credit. But that's what my gospel conversations looked like this week. And I want to press you and encourage you, keep at that. Keep at that. You don't have to hit a home run every time. Just get on base, right? Just have gospel conversations. And I think for all of the objections that we find from people to Christianity, hypocrisy in the church, jerky Christians, you know, there's a couple of them out there, or some of the annoyances of some versions of organized religion, the fundamental question is still in front of us, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What conclusion have you come to about him? You can't deny that he was an historical person. You can't overlook his claims. You can't miss his miracles. You cannot ignore his death and his resurrection. So who do you say that he is? So that was last week's uh, message. And this week, we're looking at really the second part of this hinge passage right in the center of of Mark's gospel. And today's question is something like this. Well, what does discipleship to Jesus look like? In other words, if we're all in, if we accept that Jesus is who he says he was, and we receive his offer of salvation by repentance and through faith, trusting that his death on the cross is what satisfies a righteous and holy God's judgment for our sin, that judgment fell on him and not on me, and we receive that in trusting faith, then what will Jesus want from us? And the answer is not that much. Just everything. (laughs) Absolutely everything. He wants the whole of you. And here's the thing I really would like you to grasp this morning. And it's for your good. It's for your good. Jesus is the author of life. He, He made us and he made us for himself. He knows how life is to be lived. We are smart and wise when we turn to him to see how our lives ought to be lived. I, uh, yesterday, I went out on a fat bike ride uh, with some friends. And um, I'm kind of annoyed a little bit at my bike, too. Even the fact that this is called fat biking, I take a little offense to. <laughs> and then I look down at my bike, and the brand is fat back. 
okay, thanks. And then the tires on my bike are called cake eaters. So the whole time I'm out riding, I feel like my bike is mocking me. <laughs> but we went out and we were riding and it was really good to get on the trails and it was good just to turn the cranks and to be with some brothers and it was a good time. And we finished up the ride and we were kind of talking afterwards and I was sort of lamenting like, man, I gotta do this more. The problem is about the time I'm free to bike, it's dark, right? It's dark. And then they came at me with this. You don't have a light for your bike yet? It's like, no, I don't. Then both of them pull out these lights. I brought one for you this morning. So here it is. Here's this light. And they were telling me all about it and how bright it is and how it changes things and how fun it is to ride at night. And I was like, wow, that's great. And one guy very kindly said, here, take mine, try it out, see if you like it. And I was like, okay, that's great. Uh, So I left. And then about an hour, I went right back to the sporting goods store and I bought one for myself, having never tried it. (laughs) I was convinced already. Yeah, I got to have that in the arsenal. So I bought a light, I brought it home, and I knew I needed to charge it up, so I plugged it in, and it took three hours to charge up. So that's a long time to wait for your new toy, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm waiting, 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 and there it is, the, the blue light. Oh, it's charged, sweet. So I go over and I pick it up, and I go to turn it on, I hit the button. Nothing. Like, huh, maybe you have to double click. Nothing. Looking for a switch, can't find anywhere. There's only one button here. It's not like you swipe right or anything, you know? (laughs) So I'm like, this is probably what? Press and hold, right? Press and hold. Oh, okay. So I press and hold. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. About, you know, as long as I got to press my auto start and nothing. Man, what's going on? One more time, press and hold for like a long time and still nothing. I'm thinking, what kind of piece of junk did they sell me here, you know? These guys said this was a great light. So then I, then I, had to do, I had to do that thing that none of us, especially guys, we don't want to do this. You know what I'm talking about. I had to get out the manual. I mean, if we're a fella, you're like, come on. Like, I'm walking this earth. I, you know, I've got some intuition. I can solve some problems. Surely turning on a light, I've got this mastered by now. No, I had to get out the manual. And about the third line down says, You have to press and hold for nine to 12 seconds, which let me tell you is a long time, longer than you think. So I press and hold and boom. Oh, look at that. And that's only the first setting. Then the second and the third, it can make, you can probably feel the heat from where you are, right? (laughs) Anyways, that's my new toy. And to turn it off, press and hold. There we go. But I had to do that thing that we don't want to do. I had to humble myself and say, all right, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how this works, and I have to go to the manual and see how this is supposed to function. And that's a lot like turning to the Lord and discipleship too. Okay, maybe I don't know how I'm supposed to live this life as much as I like to think that I know. And I have to do that humbling thing, which is to turn to the Lord and receive his instructions. I like the way Augustine has said it, and I've been reading him a lot lately. (laughs) Lord, you have made us for yourself. You have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So that sort of brings us to our second question in this two-part, one-sermon series here. What does discipleship to Jesus look like? 
Tomorrow's Monday. You got to go to work. You got to go to school. Does discipleship travel there with you? What does this thing look like? Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. Now at the outset here, uh, I think we need to acknowledge something that might be a little bit annoying to you to acknowledge, but this is it. Um, Jesus hasn't died yet. Okay, when he says this, it's hard to talk when you're dead. Jesus hasn't died yet. And the reason that's important is because when we Christians think about the cross, we think about the glory of the cross. We think about it with pride and with reverence and with awe and gratitude. We, we sing about it, right? Some people make tattoos of it. We wear it as jewelry. We decorate with it. We turn it into ornaments. It, it is the rightful and beautiful symbol of our faith. For us today, the cross is glorified. That's the lens that you and I bring to the scripture. But at this moment in time, when Jesus gives this teaching, that is not what people thought of the cross. We need to understand that to Jesus' audience here, when he's talking about the cross, it was only an ugly instrument of death. It was one that was used by an oppressive occupying force. In your Bibles, if you were so courageous where the word cross appears, you could, you could even cross out the word and put something like guillotine, electric chair, or noose. In other words, if we don't understand what this message meant to Jesus' first audience, then we as the second audience will completely distort it. The cross in the first century was a horrific reference. As Jesus is giving this teaching, mothers would like, you know, be covering children's ears. Don't, don't hear this part. They would send angry emails and letters to Jesus, right? That wasn't a PG message. You mentioned a cross. Again, it was such an awful way of death, death by crucifixion, that Romans wouldn't even execute it upon their fellow countrymen. They reserved it for foreigners and they reserved it for the worst of criminals of the foreigners. Um, and when a person was going to be crucified this way or killed this way by crucifixion, they would, be, they would have to carry their cross to the point where they would be executed and then nailed upon it. And this cross walk, if you will, was meant to be a public spectacle it was meant to show that this rebel who has been living in defiance is ultimately being brought under submission. And so the cross, the cross was not just, I mean, it would have conveyed, it would have conveyed both submission 
and death. And that's important to understand. It was not just a way to kill. It was a way to kill rebellious independence. It wasn't just meant to bring about death, but also to foster submission. And that is what Jesus likens discipleship to. That we who were once rebels against God would finally recognize his ultimate authority, that we would humble ourselves and commit ourselves to the imitation of Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So to the question, what does discipleship to Jesus look like? It requires a death to self and a submission to Jesus. This means, of course, that my wants and my wishes and my desires and my appetites cannot be just given full vent, but I have to bring them under submission to Jesus and to his way of life. And as we're gonna see that that is ultimately for my good, that is really for my good. Um, So at first, that's important for us to grasp because at first, this just sounds like misery, right? Oh, good, good. I get to die to myself. Thanks, pastor. That's really the encouragement that I needed this morning. It sounds painful. Why do I want to restrict my appetites or curtail my desires? Why do I want to subject myself to a restricted life that just makes God sound like this cosmic killjoy, right? Is that the best you got? Here's the thing. Discipleship does not mean a life of misery. While there really is a cost to discipleship, what we have to understand is what we're really doing there is we're learning what it means to be human. Human as God intended us to be, not continuing to persist in this distortion of humanity that we have been living. In Jesus, we find a model of what it really means to be human. In other words, the life of Jesus is not subhuman, And it's not superhuman. It's really human and an example for us of what God has always meant us to be. Uh, You guys already know this. The gospel is good news. What I would want you to hear this morning is that discipleship to Jesus is also equally good news. It is good news. In fact, Jesus highlights in his teaching that Discipleship to him is sort of a a profound kind of paradox that in giving up our autonomy, we actually find true freedom. Whereas if we're just pursuing pure freedom, we will end up in sinful captivity. In the early 90s, there was a young man um, named Chris and he had just graduated from college and he was getting prepared to go to Harvard Law And instead, in a moment and a time of disillusionment in his life, uh, he ended up selling his car and he donated his college savings of $25,000 to a local charity. And without telling anybody, he left his family and his friends, really, again, just disillusioned by the phoniness of their lives. And he set out on a personal and spiritual quest for what he claimed to be truth and ultimate freedom or ultimate truth and freedom. Uh, To even indicate 
the severity of departure from his former life to what he was about now. He even took a new name for himself, began calling himself Alexander Supertramp. And you might know his story, uh, which was made popular by the book uh, John Krakauer, uh, Into the Wild, or Sean Penn's film uh, adaptation afterwards. And you might also know that Chris McCandless trekked all the way up to the interior of Alaska, very well could have walked right down Farmer's Loop Road on our bike path, ended up eventually outside of Healy, walking up the Stampede Trail and finding an abandoned bus that he used uh, for a bit of lodging for a while. And eventually that same bus became his coffin. And that bus is now on display up at UAF's Museum of the North. And I think Chris's story is a tragedy on several levels, not just because a man died, but for me personally, because of this, because he seems to possess all of the makings of a really wonderful disciple. And yet, listen to this. He hated the hypocrisy of his parents' life and of the religious phonyism around him. He had a real interest in pursuing truth and freedom. He was ready for the costs of his pursuit. He, in contrast to many disciples of Jesus, literally gave up everything he had. He was an avid reader of philosophers and great books. He seemed like an intelligent person and very eager to learn. And yet, never finding Jesus or his gospel, Chris ended up spiraling around the sovereign self. He became a disciple with no master, following no one, living for no one, belonging to no one. He ended up alone in a bus, and that's where he died. And so while discipleship, yes, is absolutely costly, the words of Soren Kierkegaard remind us that the cost of non-discipleship costs even more. I think Chris McCandless is an eerie example of the cost of non-discipleship. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So discipleship to Jesus doesn't mean a life of misery. In fact, someone has called it a paradox of happiness. That we actually find life in the giving up of a selfish life. So discipleship means no longer living for the sovereign self. And lastly here, discipleship requires humility and imitation to Jesus. Um, I, when we think about the word, sometimes the word disciple can just get lost in us. I like to use some other words. To be a disciple is to be an apprentice. Uh, it's to be a student. Uh, maybe some of you are school teachers or you're in the school district and you had to do a year of student teaching, Right? Uh, or maybe you're a laborer, you're in construction or an electrician, and you had to do some time as a journeyman, right? Uh, or maybe another kind of work, but you had to be an intern for a while. These are good words and good phrases that mimic what discipleship is. It's getting past just the instruction, the rhetoric of it, and seeing it lived out and fleshed out and performed 
and person, and that is what we find in Jesus. So as a, as a preacher, I, I'm a disciple or an apprentice of Don Sanukian. He was my homiletics professor, and um, I learned from him. I took his class. I watched him preach. Then he watched me preach, and then he let me go to preach on my own. Um, as a fly fisherman, I, I'm an apprentice or a disciple of a local fellow named Fred DeSico, although Fred would probably disavow me altogether because my casting is terrible but, and his is not. But nevertheless, I, I'm learning from him. I've taken his classes. I've been on the water with him. I've been on land with him, and he has told me what I'm doing wrong frequently. <laughs> In life, I am a disciple. I am an apprentice of Jesus which means, I think, three things. It means to know his teaching, to put on his character, and to be about his mission. I want to go back to this character one, because I had a tough week on this one. Because on Friday, I came home, and I was in a grouchy mood, I'm told. And I said some unkind things to my wife and my 13-year-old son. And discipleship to Jesus for me meant that I not only had to go through that conversation, but I had to come back to both my wife and humbling my 13-year-old son and apologize for unkind words that a father would speak. You know, there are a lot of things you, you know you can't pull back. You wish you could. And in that moment, I was satisfying my anger. And I did not bless my wife or my son. The, the striving to put on the character of Jesus would mean that I would recognize my shortfall and try to make it right. Um, to know his teachings, to be putting on his character, which is not a perfect spiral of success, and to be about his mission. And once again, I think this might sound difficult, and we might think, you know, great, okay, great. Uh, I, I hear you, preacher, all right. I'm willing to be, a disciple of Jesus. But what do I do? What are, what are the things? Tell me the things. To, what are the, I need a list. Give me a list. How many of you are list people? I am a list person. I make a new list every Monday morning. It's usually three pages long. And I love all oh, the crossing them off. Give me a list. I'll stay on task. You may be like me and you think, okay, discipleship. So give me, give me a list. I want to know what it is that I have to do. And I want to tell you this. You don't want a list. We have something better. We have a life. A life that was lived. We see what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus because we've seen him live. We've seen it lived out. God initially gave a list to Israel, right? He gave the Ten Commandments. They came out of 400 years of captivity in Egypt in a polytheistic nation. They did not know their God anymore. They did not know how to relate to him or how to make him happy. And he said, here, here is the list. These are the 10 things I want you to do. And they loved the law. 
Finally, this is great. We know something of our God and we know what he wants from us. This is great. This is really good. Uh, Actually, there's a few other things, right? Like 600 other things. Can you imagine that? Like on a Sunday morning, we're out in the lobby and somebody says, man, I blew it on 548 this week. And you're like, 500. Which one was that again? (laughs) Do you want a list? I don't want a list. I want to follow a life, the life of Jesus. And this is why Jesus eventually said, because not only was there the 10 and then the 600, right? Because the religious leaders threw a whole bunch of others on top. Well, what you really need to do is, and that's when Jesus comes in and says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here again is the paradox. The weight of the cross and at the same time, the lightness of the yoke of Jesus. Dying to self breeds this ease of life and this rest as we live into the life we were meant for. Jesus summarizes this for us very beautifully, and I hope you treasure these words in the twofold command, love God and love neighbor. It is wonderful that he boiled it down that simple. The law kept in the keeping of those two. I like how Augustine says it. He even simplifies it one more. I'm not saying he's right, but just for, just for sake of conversation, Augustine says, love God, do whatever you want. Because if you're really loving God, then what you're wanting to do will be the things that God wants. You really will also love your neighbor and also, and so on and so on. What we find here, though, is that if we were just to woodenly keep the law, we might be missing out on love. But in keeping the law of love, we end up keeping the law. Jesus, more than this, Jesus puts all of this law-keeping, uh, this law-keeping love on display in his life. And that is lovely because we can constantly look back and say, what did it look like in person? So I want to bring this to a close with just one last point here. Uh, I want to bring this into our cultural moment. How is discipleship being challenged or threatened in our lives? What keeps us from doing it? What are we running into? And I would say this, I think the number one threat against discipleship right now today is what I would call the cult of individualism. And I think we are being invited into this cult every day. I'll give you some of the obvious ways that you hear about it. And this comes by way of slogan. How about a couple of these? Live your own truth. You be you. You do you. Be true to yourself. Just live your best life. It's this regular invitation to, no, it's all about you. And then there are more subtle ways this is happening in in sort of these cultural aspects. Uh, Consider you have an iPhone. It's about you. Uh, You watch YouTube when you want, whenever you want. Uh, You watch on-demand TV as quick as you want. You can get through the sermon at speed and a half. I've been told a few people do that at home. Don't do that. Some of you are like, that's a nice option. I can, I can really go. 
I don't know why you're laughing so loud there. <laughs> or in whatever musical apparatus you're listening to, Spotify, whatever, you can curate your own music. We like these things. These are fine things. My son, who's a sneaker guy, my 13-year-old, he turned me on to this the other day. You can go to the Nike website and find a base pair of shoes, and guess what? Customize them, and you can make your own sneaker. And some of you are like, I don't know what you said before this, pastor, and I'm going home. I'm going to do that right now because my own sneakers. And it's, these are not bad things, right? They're not bad things, but what they continually reinforce is you, 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 you. It's about you. It's all about you. No, we belong to Jesus. The culture catechizes us. It teaches us all these liturgies that we go through every day of reinforcing this cult of individualism. And we come to church for an hour to reorient our hearts, uh, keep coming to church, but we're gonna need more to confront this. We belong to Jesus. This means we know his teaching, putting on his character, and we're about his mission, and that's discipleship. Let me pray for us. Lord, bring us both to the cross where we would die to ourselves and live in submission to you. And at the same time, may the other picture be in our mind. The yoke that we pick up from you is gentle and light. In contrast to man-made rules, lists without end or performance. Lord, help us to put to death the self and to live unto Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.